0: You know, when we read stories or watch movies or just kind of live the soap opera of life, it's really easy to kind of see people as the good guys and the bad guys, right? In fact, when you think about, uh, like your favorite movies or life in general, we have our iconic good guys and bad guys, right? On one hand, you've got the Mario Brothers. And on the other hand, you've got Bowser, right? On the, on the one hand, you've got Luke Skywalker and on the other hand, there's Darth Vader, right? On on the one hand, there's Batman, and on the other hand, there's the Joker. On the one hand, there's the Yankees, and on the other hand, there's the Red Sox, right? That's just how life is, right? We have our hero and we have our villain. We have our good guys and our bad guys. And sometimes we just kind of read life Uh, that into all of life where hey, there's good guys and bad guys and sure we allow that good guys can have their flaws and bad guys can every once in a while make a good choice or something but we have good guys and bad guys and sometimes that's the prism with which we use to look at life and so when we come to a story like Esther we can kinda read that idea into the story so we have the good guys, right? We have Mordecai and Esther and the Jews, and they're the good guys. And then we have the bad guys, and that's Xerxes and Haman and the Persians. And so we have our good guys and our bad guys. And our thinking is something like this. Hey, you have your good guys, and sometimes there's this alien sin problem that comes and just affects them. And so now they have to act in this righteous Way, but they're affected by this alien sin problem. You know, the problem with reading scripture that way, the problem with that being our prism for the way we view life, is that's not what the Bible says. When we have a biblical perspective, it's not that there's an alien sin problem and we have this inherent righteousness. The problem is we have an inherent sin problem and we need an alien righteousness. That's a righteousness not of ourselves. So we come to the story of Esther. We don't see the good guys and the bad guys. We see the bad guys and God. Because the truth is this, there is none who are good except for God alone. There is no one who is inherently righteous except for God alone. And so when we understand that, then the temptation to kind of sanitize the story of Esther and clean it up and everything and so that she can be pristine and good and wonderful, well, that kind of goes away a little bit, and we're able just to read the text and see what the Bible tells us. So let's do that this morning. Esther 2, verses 1 through 18. Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, as we continue our series, The Way to the Crown, the story of Queen Esther. After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hige, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young, women who please, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hige, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hige, who had charge of the women." And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now When the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahazarus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hige, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So if you remember, we ended last week with uh, King Xerxes, uh, also known king Ahazeras, right? So you got his Persian name and his Greek name is King Xerxes. We tend to know him better by that name. Well, Vashti had basically stood him up, right? She want, he wanted to parade her in front of all these drunk guys so they could just kind of oogle at her and lust after her. She didn't want to do that. She said no. And then he's left, well, what am I going to do? And he seeks out his advisors. And his advisors say, you need to banish her out of the kingdom. And this is a bigger deal than just Vashti. We also need like a decree to go out that tells all the women that they must obey their husbands. And, that, and uh. King Xerxes says, I like that idea. That's a really good idea. We're going to go with that. And so that's what he does. And so now we pick up the story in chapter 2. And it said, after these things, when the king's anger had abated. And you're always wondering, like, well, what things? Like, what things have transpired? And then you read down and you see in verse 16, it says, in the seventh year of his reign. If you remember last week, we picked up the story. We're introduced to King Xerxes and everything that's going on in the Persian Empire in the third year of his reign. So this is four years later. And by the time you're starting chapter two, really it's about two to three years later. So two to three years have passed. And when you look into the history books and you see what happened during those two to three years, years uh, four, five, six of King Xerxes' reign, what you discover is that it was at this time that he led a conquest into Greece. And he wanted to take over and capture Greece. Well, the Greek army withstood the Persian army. And so it was really one of the great defeats And King Xerxes, he has to go back, basically hat in hand. And you can imagine, here he is, he's the most powerful guy in the world, the most wealthy guy in the world, but he's been defeated. And, and he goes back, and he's probably discouraged, he's probably down, he's probably sad, and there's all these things. And you know what you want when you come back like that? It doesn't matter how powerful you are, how wealthy you are, how mighty you are. You want someone just to run, to give you a hug, tell you you're still okay, that you're still good. Hey, this is a momentary setback, but you're going to be all right. It's going to be great. You know what he wanted? He wanted Vashti. He wanted her to be the one who would come and hug him and tell him how good he was and all these things. He wanted Vashti. And so his anger, it's long abated because, you know, the mind has a way of doing this, right? They say that, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And sometimes you, you, you get a ways out and you look back. It's like, why did I get so mad about that anyway? Because uh, all he really wanted was Vashti. And so he's depressed. He's down. And everybody can see it. We know that everybody can see it because it says that the young men see it, Okay. If if the young men see it, you know everybody's seeing it because they're often oblivious, right? But even they notice, okay? The king is depressed, man. This is rough. And so, you know, these young guys, they get together and say, King, you know what you need? You need a whole bunch of young virgins. That'll cheer you right up, okay? I mean, typical young men advice, I guess. I don't know, but this, this is their thinking. This is what they got. Now, listen, when you're just down, when you feel like your whole world is just crashing in on you, you become especially susceptible to really bad advice, okay? Because you'll listen to anybody who's telling you something. And one of the things, as you go through the story of King Xerxes, one of the hallmarks of his story is he just gets a whole lot of bad advice time after time after time, right? It was the wise men in chapter 1 who blew up this whole thing with bastions. Oh, this is going to affect every woman in the whole kingdom. we got to have this massive edict. And now here in chapter 2, He basically goes to the frat party for advice and here's what they say, right? And listen, when you turn away from God, you're going to turn somewhere else. And this is what Xerxes is doing. He turns away from God and he turns to these young guys and they're saying to him, King, you're mighty, you're powerful, you're wealthy, you're good-looking. You deserve to be happy. And here's what will make you happy, right? Here's what we'll put in place. We all laugh and say, no, 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 that's just going to compound your problem, Xerxes, uh, that the only thing that's going to fix your problem is to repent and turn to God. But nobody's telling him that, right? Nobody's telling him to repent and turn to the one true God. What Xerxes does is he turns to these foolish young men, and then he turns to a whole bunch of beautiful young ladies, and he thinks that they will fix him. What we see here is a problem for uh, that tends to be a problem for a lot of relationships, right? When, when relationships struggle, it doesn't matter of the relationship, but when a relationship struggles, typically what happens is we put on somebody a job description that they cannot fulfill. Okay, we we put on them a job description. Uh, hey, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You're probably gonna be forsaken a time or two. Okay? That doesn't mean cheated on. That's not what I'm saying, but you know, forsaken, you're probably gonna be let down. Right? And we, we put on these job descriptions. Hey, you can complete me. You can fix me. You can bring me joy. You can bring me happiness. You can bring me the you can do for me what really only God can do for you. I know I've done it with my spouse, I know I've done it with Steph. given her a job description at times that she cannot. Fulfill. And we've all done it with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, with counselors. You're the one who's going to make all things right. Only God can do that. He's the only one who can fix us. He's the only one who brings an eternal joy that never subsides. Well, Xerxes, he goes to the young men. The young men say, here's what you need. You need all these beautiful young ladies and then they get together and they flesh it out a little bit okay okay how are we gonna do this and they come up with this contest they say here's what we'll do we'll go throughout all the provinces we'll summon all the beautiful young ladies right here in Susa each one will have their one night with the king it's gonna be great we'll call it the bachelor Persia isn't it funny You fast-forward 2,500 years and nothing has changed, right? The heart of humanity stays the same. The dates change, the leaders change, the locations change. But the heart of humanity stays the same. We are a desperately wicked bunch. And this is the advice. Bachelor Persia. I mean, essentially, that's what it is. And so, this happens. And we're taken right to the citadel, right to Susa, and we meet a Jew there named Mordecai. And we're told that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. That is, he's going to be from the line of Saul. That will be important later in the story. But for now, the first question that comes up is, why is a Jew in Susa? How come he's not in Jerusalem? That should be the question that we're asking. And to get the answer to that, you got to go back Uh, Basically during the time of Daniel, okay? And during the time of Daniel, at that time, the Babylonians were the big kids on the block. They come into the southern kingdom Judah, raid Judah, exile the Jews out of Judah into Babylon, all right? And so that's why the Jews are there. Now you fast-forward 70 years, and the Babylonians are no longer the big kids on the block, now it's the Persians. The first king of Persia, King Cyrus, he issues a decree that allows uh, the Jews to go home. Uh, Zerubbabel comes, he, wav- he leads a wave of Jews back to Jerusalem. Ezra comes, he leads a larger wave of Jews back to Jerusalem. Uh, but there's still some who stay behind. And Isaiah, the prophet, he actually wrote to those and spoke to those who stayed behind. And he told them, God says, you need to go back to Jerusalem. You need to get out of this pagan land and you need to go back. Now, Mordecai, he's one of the rebellious ones, the disobedient ones. He's one of those who has stayed in Persia anyway. He didn't go back. He probably got comfortable there. You know, you start living life and, you know, you live there. Man, it's a hassle to go all the way back to Jerusalem. We're fitting in fine here. We're eating well. All these different things. And so this is Mordecai. He's a rebellious one. He's a compromiser. You understand, he's living in a land that he's not supposed to be living in. He's eating food that he's not supposed to be eating. He's not practicing the Mosaic law with the prescribed sacrifices and all these things that he's supposed to be doing because he can't do it there. He's probably engaging in the different celebrations and everything, because culturally that's just what you do. And he's trying to fit in. You get that idea because he's telling Esther, his adopted daughter, hey, don't let anyone know who you are. In fact, we'll call you Esther, not Hadassah, just so no one even knows that you're Jewish. So you look at Mordecai. I mean, today, maybe you'd call him like a cultural Christian or something like that, right? Where if you were to get him privately alone and you were to ask, hey, do you believe in God? Mordecai would say, well, yeah, but you know, just kind of keep it down, you know? Faith is a private thing. You know, people can believe whatever they want. That's what I believe, but you know, just let's just kind of keep that between ourselves. This is the kind of guy Mordecai is, right? You you can't look at his life and discern that he's a follower of the one true God. You you just wouldn't know because he's compromised and compromised and compromised time after time after time. It doesn't mean he doesn't do anything good. Uh, He's adopted his cousin. Hadassah, uh, Esther, her parents have died. He's the closest living male relative. And in those days, it had been custom that he would be the one to adopt the child, and he does. He steps up to the plate, he, he adopts Esther, and he raises Esther. Uh, but then come this, this edict, this order that all the beautiful young ladies be taken for the bachelor Persia contest and he doesn't do anything you know he doesn't stand up and protect us this is when Esther needs him most right hey your dad like step up so that I don't have to go through this he doesn't he stays quiet I want to tell you men especially husbands and dads oftentimes this can be our greatest struggle and it goes all the way back to Adam Right. You remember Adam in the garden and Eve, she's there being tempted by the serpent. And where's Adam? He's right there with her. And but, you know, Eve goes through the temptation, everything. And then God comes and Adam's like, I didn't do anything. It was that woman you gave me. I mean, I didn't I didn't do it. It was all her. And Mordecai can say the same thing. Hey, here come the guy. Here come the bad guys of Persia. they're coming. They're coming to get Esther. And Mordecai, I didn't do anything. It was the bad guys who came in and took her away. I mean, I I didn't do anything. That's the problem, you know, is sometimes we don't speak up when we need to speak up. Sometimes we don't do anything when we need to do something. It's not always the sins of commission, you know, it's the sins of omission. So, yeah, you can say, well, I didn't do anything. Well, yeah, that's the problem you didn't do anything. This is the problem for Mordecai. Right when Esther needs him, he doesn't do anything. So we meet Esther, Hadassah. Hadassah is her Hebrew name her Jewish name. It means myrtle. Uh, Esther, it's her Persian name. Uh, it's taken from the goddess of Ishtar, the goddess of love. It means star. And Esther, she's got her Hebrew identity and she's got her Persian identity, and we meet her, she seems conflicted, you know. If you were to talk to her, she'd probably say she belonged to God, but she's disobeying God and the food she eats. She'd probably say she belongs to God, but she's living far away from God. She'd probably say she belongs to God, but we never see her pray. We we never see her worship. We never see her repent. Uh, In fact, when we meet Esther, it seems like She's just doing whatever it is she has to do because other people have made choices, right? She's just kind of living in the flow, in the current of the decisions that other people are making. So Mordecai makes decisions, Esther kind of goes with the flow. Xerxes makes decisions, Esther goes with the flow. Hige makes decisions, Esther goes with the flow. This is kind of the idea that you get when you meet her. But at the same time, there is something about her something captivating about her not just her figure not just her looks there, there is something about her that just wins over the favor of people first it's he right he meets her he's in charge of all the women who are coming through but there is something about esther and so he says here it is here's the best food Here's, here's the best cosmetics. Here's the best servants to attend to you and give you everything you need. Here's the best place in the harem. You had it all. And when the people meet Esther, it says she, she's earning the favor of all of them. And then, well, month after month of preparation, 12 months, 12 months of preparation for this one night. Well, now it's her night. It's her night with the king. Now the king had like 400 knights lined up, okay? We, the estimate is about 400 young ladies and she's number whatever number, right? But here's her knight with the king. Now all we're really told is she went in, she went out, he chose her. That's all the details we get. That's probably all the details we want, just okay? But, but that's the details we get. Because that's all the details we get, there are some who they want to read into the text and, well, what happened during that night? And some say, well, you know, I think Esther probably maintained her innocence the whole, you know, through the whole thing. Um, you know, and maybe that's why the king chose her. I mean, maybe, but you're talking about a king who's lined up 400 women. I don't think he's doing it to practice fidelity, okay? So I think it's kind of a naive view. And, and, and even more so, when you look at the language in the Hebrew, to, to go into the king, like anytime you get language like that, it's almost always referring to something else, right? So there's that. The, the second view that is sometimes taken is that, well, she's the victim of assault. Here she is, this poor, impressionable, young girl, and she's taken in to the palace by this powerful, wealthy, mighty king. Of course, she's just going to have to do whatever he says. And so she's the victim of some kind of assault. The, the, the problem with that view is that the Bible doesn't tell us she's the victim of assault. Anytime that you see a victim of assault in the scriptures, you usually have that spelled out. Like, hey, here, this is, you know. what you see is she went in. She went out. Was she conflicted? I imagine so. Uh, Mordecai would later say in the book that Esther attained the crown. The other option is that Esther acted willfully. She's convicted, uh, conflicted. You see that in just how she's already living. She's living in a pagan land, not in the land she's supposed to be. And probably not by choice, but that's where she is. She's eating food that she's probably not supposed to be eating. She's not obeying all of God's laws. Uh, She's a conflicted person. She's keeping her identity secret. She's not telling anyone she believes in God. You know, she could have said no. You know, I mean, when it was her, she could have said no. I Maybe mean, you think, well, Steve, come on. I mean, she says no. What's going to happen to her? Probably something really bad. I don't know. But Vashti said no. She said no. Daniel, when the Babylonians told Daniel, hey, this is the food you have to eat, what did Daniel say? No. And you go through scripture and you can see account after account after account. Of God's people, telling powerful people, "No, I cannot compromise in this way." Now, we look at the characters in the story of Esther, and we see Xerxes, and we all agree, right? Like Xerxes is the jerksees, right? We, we're, we're there, but then there's Esther. You said, Steve, I feel like you're kind of being hard on Esther. She's this young girl. I mean, you're kind of being hard on her. Well, listen, yay, I'm being hard on Esther. You know what, I'm being hard on Mordecai too. I'm being hard on Xerxes too. You know what, I'm being hard on you, and I'm being hard on me. Because the story of the scripture is not that here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. The story of scripture is here are the bad guys and here is Jesus. That's it. Esther was not this righteous person who had this alien sin problem who just withstood it all because of her righteousness. Esther had this inherent sin problem who needed an alien righteousness just like all of us. Just like everyone who's ever lived. Just like Xerxes. Just like Haman. Just like Mordecai. Just like you and me. We have an inherent sin problem. We need an alien righteousness that is a righteousness not of ourselves. You know what? I find this reading of the scripture actually the most natural to the text and also really the most encouraging. Because when we, when we have this idea that the reason why God was using Esther was because she was righteous. She was a good guy. Well, then I end up with a really big problem because it means that in order for God to use me, I've got to be righteous. I've got to be good. And the problem is, I know myself. You know yourself. I'm not righteous. I'm not good. I know the sin within me. I know my need for Jesus. This is, this is the story of Esther, someone who needed God. Jesus is the hero. I find that incredibly encouraging. That he can use, compromise, culturally conflicted people like Mordecai and Esther to accomplish great things for his glory. You know what God doesn't say? He says, you guys are the disobedient ones. You're the rebellious ones. You're the ones who you decide to stay in this land and not go back? Not go back to Jerusalem when you've been able to? I'm done with you. You can just stay there. Whatever happens, happens. God doesn't do that. He works in the lives of the disobedient ones. He works in the lives of the rebellious ones, the, the culturally compromised ones. And so what happens in the story of Esther is through her compromises and in the midst of her just cultural experience, God gives her favor in the eyes of the king. This king who you get the idea is more in the business of adding names than remembering names somehow remembers the name Esther. And he summons her and he puts the crown on her head and she is the next queen. And what does the king do when he has a new queen? Well, what the king always does, right? He throws a party. It's another party. It's party time again for Xerxes. There's a great party. And this time, hey, no taxes. Any of the provinces, nobody has to pay taxes. It's all in honor of Esther. And so, you know, everybody's loving their new queen because they just got a week off of taxes. This is great. And so this is what's happening. And as we read this, what, what I want us to be able to see is, yes, these people are culturally compromised. They're disobedient. They're not glamorous, like incredibly faithful people. But you know what you also see in the story of Esther? Is God working behind the scenes to grab a hold of her heart? Because as she starts off as this passive woman who's just kind of going through what everyone else, based on the decisions that everyone else is making, I think God is working behind the scenes to capture her heart, to be able to stand up and eventually, essentially say no. To stand up to leadership, to do what you would not do. Right? For the sake of her people. Listen, sometimes we can really want people to change. We can want circumstances to change. We can want things to change. But if we really want to be the agent of change that God uh, uses, then the question comes to us, are we giving all of ourselves to God? Because, you know, when you have things like The Bachelor, and we watch it for entertainment, we go, oh, wow, that's great. And the next day, hey, biblical marriage, that's what we stand for. When you turn marriage into a game show on one hand, and then you celebrate biblical marriage on the other hand, don't be surprised when people don't take you seriously, okay? It just rings hollow, right? We we don't want to be these compromised people. We want to give God all of who we are. This is what he wants. He doesn't want just a part of us. He well, let me just have your heart. No, no, no. He's not after just your heart. He's after all of who you are. So I know the hairs on your head. I want all of you, all of your heart's affection, all of your mind's attention, everything you do. He's after it all. And when you give God all, give God all of you, well, now you're walking in step. Now, now there's this joy and this peace and this satisfaction that comes with living the Christian life. We begin to see God getting more and more of Mordecai and how Mordecai is moving from compromised to committed. I want you to see this. Uh, Esther two nineteen through twenty three. Esther two nineteen through twenty three. It reads now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Esther is queen, but Mordecai, he's still probably a little concerned for her. He still wants to keep up with her, see how she's doing. And so he's continuing to hang out by the gate to get updates. And then one day as he's there, he overhears this assassination plot. And in any culture anywhere, if there's an assassination plot against the king, against the leader, you take that stuff real seriously, right? They investigate it, it it turns out to be true. And so the two guys, they're hanged on the gallows, and it's all recorded in the history books. But it will largely be forgotten for a while. We'll see that. Now, we don't know exactly how Mordecai felt about Xerxes. We're not really told that. But I can imagine that he was at the very least conflicted about Xerxes, you know. I mean, Mordecai does believe in the one true God. And here is Xerxes, the king who is claiming to be a God. Uh, He at least believes in one God. And Xerxes is leading a polytheistic kingdom of many gods. He's got to be at least conflicted. And then also Esther is now queen. And I can't imagine any dad who, like, when you're dreaming about what, what's to come for your daughter, you're like, you know what I really want? I really want my girl to end up in, like, some kind of bachelor contest where, you know, 400 women get to line up for a night with the king, and I really hope that my daughter's the one who's chosen. Like, I don't think anybody, like, dreams that for their daughter, right? And so here's Xerxes. He's probably at the very least conflicted in this how he feels or Mordecai how he feels about Xerxes but what does he do in this situation yeah he could have been silent hey whatever happens Xerxes happens who knows maybe Esther will have a higher position she'll just be queen she'll be ruler it'll be great Uh, or he could say something and this is what he does he says something he works on behalf of the good of Xerxes now sometimes it is uh, sometimes difficult for us to wish government officials, politicians, leaders who we disagree with well to work on their behalf, to work on their good. In fact, it's oftentimes that you can hear Christians make disparaging comments about government leaders, government officials, even hateful comments at times about, about how they lead who they are. Uh, I imagine that Mordecai probably would have wanted to make some of those comments, but we don't read any of that. What we read is him working on behalf of the good of King Xerxes, who is by no means a king of virtue. He's he's a pagan idolatrous king. You know what's more, when the Jews were exiled into Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah he, he told the Jews this, he said to seek the prosperity of the city where I have deported you and pray on behalf of it. Do you know how hard that command is? These people had just been exiled out of their homeland. They've watched the Babylonians come in and reduce Jerusalem to rubble, their beloved temple destroyed. They've taken the teenage boys out of Jerusalem, exiled them off into Babylon, brainwashed them basically to become Babylonians. You yourself, you've been taken away into Babylon, into this foreign land, this idolatrous land. And you're being told over and over and over again, our gods are great, your God, he's nothing. And then God says, here's what I'd like you to do work on behalf of the prosperity of Babylon and pray for the success of Babylon. That's hard, right? That's hard. This is what he calls for us as Christians to be about, though. As you read through the entirety of Scripture, and really, you don't read too many like good regimes, you know, where you're looking, man, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom, right? You don't read that. All you read about is, oh man, the Babylonians, they're terrible, the Egyptians, they're terrible, the Persians, they're terrible. Even the Jews, when they have a shot, man, they really blow it too. It's all bad. The Romans, it's bad. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. It's all bad. But who are the Christians? What are they doing? Well, you see time and time and time again, where Christians are seeking the good of the place they live. They're praying for it. They're serving. They're loving. You know, our temptation... Is often okay things aren't going the way we want here's what needs to happen we need a law so that culture can do what we as Christians think culture ought to do and then basically culture can bow to us what we see over and over and over again in the scriptures is Christians bowing to the authority of the government but at the same time praying loving serving Why? Because we understand that our greatest weapons are spiritual, not political. I mean, we must get to a place where we believe this again, that our greatest weapons as Christians are spiritual, not political. And when we do that, well, then we become people of prayer, not people of complaints. Now, we meet Esther. In a compromised time, she's compromised, conflicted herself, but at the same time when you meet her and you consider her story, it's it's hard not to be at least a little bit reminded of Jesus, you know. Because like Esther, Jesus comes from a line of God's covenant people. Like Esther, Jesus would grow up far, far away from his homeland in heaven. Like Esther, Jesus, he has an adopted earthly father. Like Esther, Jesus, he grew up in poor and humble circumstances. Like Esther, no one would look at Jesus and think, oh yes, he's chosen for royalty. And like Esther, Jesus would save his people from death. But you know what? Jesus is a way better savior. Because unlike Esther, Jesus was never compromised. Unlike Esther, Jesus was not trying to conceal his identity, but to reveal it. And unlike Esther, Jesus didn't just save a few people from an earthly death. Jesus saved people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from an eternal death. Yet Jesus is a way better Savior. He's a better king. He's a better Savior. We see that in the book of Esther, and what we see is the same God who works behind the scenes in a culturally compromised Esther, is working behind the scenes in a culturally compromised you and me so that we can be the people he's made us to be. He's the one true hero. He's the one true good guy. He was the Savior then, and he is the Savior now. He's the one we need. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you, And you alone are good. But God, that you didn't just keep that goodness to yourself. But God, you give us, your followers, your goodness. A goodness that is alien to us. It is foreign to us. But it is true with you. Heavenly Father, may we proclaim the one who is good. We need your help to do this. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.